So let's spend a moment in prayer, shall we? It's because of you that we are who we are. Your generosity and your love, your mercy and your hope, and your passion for us, our God. And so we gather in this place to hear your word and to hear how you might speak to us. So open our hearts and our ears and enable us, our God, to serve you as we worship in this place through Christ our Lord. Amen. My kids have always told me that, you know, I should never mention them in a sermon, so I'm not mentioning them today. I'm going to mention a friend of theirs instead, which is, it's safer. He lives a long, lives a long way away. And this is when he was quite young, so he'll have probably forgotten this. But we had a young friend named Fergus, and he was one of those typical young men, about seven or eight or nine years of age, and his room was the disaster space, and, you know, typical kid. His parents would try anything they could to have him tidy up his room, and of course, these uh, uh, concerns and energies and plans and hopes fell on deaf ears and no action at all. And after a while, they both, both the parents began to work full time, so they employed a cleaner. And the cleaner said, oh, I'll, have him, I'll have him sorted out within a week. And they said, Oh, well, best of luck. If you do that, you get a tip, you get paid extra. Anyway, um, our friend Gay came home from work and she saw Fergus sitting on the front doorstep, his head hanging in forlorn despair. He'd lost a tooth that week and was waiting for the tooth fairy to turn up and give him some cash. And he was sitting there holding this note in his hand and she said, what on earth has happened? And he said, I've got this note from the tooth fairy. And the note said, I couldn't find my way into your room. <laughs> so there's no cash. But more than that, I've had a word with Santa Claus and he can't make it into your room either, so Christmas is looking pretty dim as well. And he's sitting there absolutely disconsolate, in absolute despair, thinking the end of the world had arrived for him. Within a day, and for the rest of that year, an impeccably tidy bedroom. Fergus, of course, forgets that story. I think it's called repressed memory, I'm not too sure, but anyway... But you see, we enter these kinds of stories about the grace and the mercy and the hope of God and we live in a culture where there are always strings attached. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this or behave this way or say this kind of thing or follow these kinds of rules or behave in this kind of fashion, you will be blessed. God's mercy or God's grace or the grace of Santa Claus will turn up for you. And we live in this culture and so when we encounter a word like the word of God in the book of Romans, we hear it, but then we almost immediately jerk back to our default position because everything in the culture and the world around us tells us there's always a string somewhere. There's always a condition on this. Grace is not really grace. Grace is grace until, or grace is grace if, or grace is grace when. Where Paul rather tells us Grace is. Grace is. And the invitation is to immerse ourselves, to engage ourselves, to participate, to be part of the story of God's grace and to live our lives like it is truly what it's meant to be. When we baptise infants or adults, but certainly infants, we talk about this grace in such a way where someone with no ability to say a word for themselves or pay their way or earn their way or live their way into faith and hope is held by the grace of God and we tell the story in baptising a tiny baby, before you know it, 
before you can speak for yourself or act for yourself or engage for yourself, God is for you. And we hold this story for ourselves. That at our strongest moments, of course God engages us. But at our weakest and our most fragile and our most, our most frail moments, God is still for us. Which is why Martin Luther, at his worst moments, at his most fragile, would say, I am baptised. Not proudly or arrogantly, but to make a claim that says, my identity is found not in what I do or how I behave, but in the grace and the mercy of the living God, who has known me before I could speak for myself. We also live in a culture, and it's getting stronger and stronger, with our mobile phones and our iPads with dates and times all over them and diaries that pop up and say, you've got to be here next year. I have one of those. It goes off all the time. You're here next, you're doing this next or whatever. In this linear sense of time, here's the beginning and here's the end and we're caught up in the story here. But the story of grace is not this linear kind of story where God does this tick off here and this tick off at the other end. We are always caught up in this grace. This grace has been present before we knew it. This grace will continue until the completion of everything that there is. This grace is present always. And Paul tries to capture this for us by talking about grace in its hugeness. Grace is this thing, says Paul, especially in Romans. Grace is this thing which was there before we spoke about it and will be there forever and we are caught up and embraced in this story. When I was in youth group a thousand years ago, we talked about Romans like it was simply about me. My sin, my experience of faith, my hope, the God speaking to me. Paul has a much larger plan in mind. This grace is not about selecting individuals. This is the grace that says God intends to embrace the whole of creation and the whole of history. If you can get your mind anywhere near that, I'm impressed. God intends to do this and we are caught up in this story. Grace is first and grace is always found in the love of God. Simon talked about the word sanctified when we engaged about this sermon, the word sanctified and justified. And they're words that sort of were used all the time when I was younger and sort of fell into disuse because they became, you know, sometimes there are these cliche words, not cliche, but words that we use all the time until they almost lose their meaning a lot of the time. But there's this sense in Paul that this grace and this spirit of God of the crucified and risen Christ stirs and moves us and washes and renews us and changes and refreshes us and keeps on adapting us, not to the world in which we live, but to the Christ who has died and been raised for us. And as such, we are then able to bear witness to this Christ in the lives around us. Sanctification isn't something that we do or earn or pay for. Sanctification is something that God does as God redeems and changes us, washes and refreshes us, transforms us. 
And in the back of our minds, up in here, is this question, what must we do to earn this thing? What must we do to be of this thing? And the story keeps coming back. It isn't what you must do, it's how you respond. This is gift. This is promise. When we receive this, how must we then engage in this story into which God has invited us? What shall we say then? Shall we sin more that grace might increase? Shall we just get worse? If we act worse, will the grace increase? Is this the kind of deal we do where if we be naughtier, God will be gracier to us? Is that what we do? Shall we behave that kind of way? What if we stuff things up more and that more grace will pour in? And Paul says in this wonderfully used expression, by no means, in brackets, don't be so stupid, close brackets. Don't be so silly. Grace is not predicated on how we behave and is never predicated on how we behave. Grace is predicated on how God behaves, on who God is. God loves us and acts towards us in that love. But we still struggle a bit. We like the idea of the transaction. We like the idea of the deal. We like the idea somewhere down here that we've done something a little bit to earn this grace. We like the idea that God thinks we're pretty crash hot because I think I'm crash hot too. But this is where Paul is both empowered and disempowered and tells us the same thing. There is no transaction here in which we give God anything. All we can offer God is the response of thanks to what God offers to us. Now, I don't know how much Greek work you do here in this church. My congregation moans and rolls their eyes when I mention Greek words. But in case you were wondering, the word for grace is charis. And the word for gift is charisma. Why do I tell you that? Because in this passage, more than any other passage in Romans, Paul wants us to know that grace and gift are together. Shall we sin the more that grace might increase? And the free gift of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and gift are together. English doesn't capture it at all. Gift and grace are together. Because out of grace is given the free gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But our gears grind a bit right here, don't they? That's not how it works. That's not how the world works. We know perfectly well at some point we're going to have to pay. We know deep down there's something that we have to do, something deep down that we have to engage with to make God grace us more, and that's just not how it works. Last week's Gospel reading in the lecture was, what shall it profit a person if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? What if we work so hard for this, invest everything in this, do you think God might just love me more? No. No. God's already convinced 
God is already completely and absolutely convinced about us. He thinks we're wonderful. And that's where the story begins, with this grace and this gift. God is convinced about us. So when Paul talks about God restoring creation and making the whole thing whole, that's in a few weeks' time, I presume, in Romans 8. When God talks about this restoration of creation, about the whole creation groaning for renewal, this is not the creation working for renewal. This is the creation caught up in this mercy and grace of God. God wants to save everything. God wants to save everything. Why? Because he's convinced about us. He loves us and wants us all to know what that love looks like. And so the question that hovers always around my faith and my life, that hovers always around me is, if God intends to save, what then can prevent God from saving us? Paul asks that question. If God intends to save, what then can prevent God? Because Paul uses the language of wages. You pay this, the wages of sin is death. But there's this free gift. We live in a world of cost. Something always costs. And the idea of something coming free, we find greatly difficult. But if God's so invested in saving, if God's so invested in saving everything, what can prevent God? And suddenly we think, we're talking about God saving everything. What about all the stuff that they've done that's bad and all the stuff that we've done that's good? Hold on, this is going a little bit haywire. This isn't the way it works. Surely some have to pay. And I'm always fascinated by the number of Christians who are so convinced about a God who spends more time scratching people out of the ledger than gathering people into it. Convinced with those, those Christians who are convinced about a God who has a much longer naughty list than a nice list. Why is it we are so invested in that? Why is it we are so invested in a belief that God must have the little black book and not this whopping great white book in which God wants to write every single name. What concerns us? What concerns us? And some will say, oh, well, there are verses about this. I think deep down we're a bit insulted because part of us quite likes the idea of earning our way, of paying our way, of doing a deal getting a transaction done. We quite like that idea. We quite like the idea that, oh, God loves all of us, but he likes Simon a little bit more because, you know, he can preach and stuff. We quite like that idea that Cheryl or Bruce have earned some more points because they work really hard for the church or serve the poor, and suddenly we realise, we're caught up in the Roman story, God's already completely and utterly convinced about us. God loves us. There is no greater love that God can offer us than what God has already offered us. So as someone might say in a pub, you mean my money is no good here? And the answer is no. Your money is no good here. You're simply welcome and invited to take part in the story of God. So I'm going to turn around 
the wonderful photographs and the theme up here just for a second, let me tell you that God is not ashamed of you. We are not ashamed of the gospel, but God is not ashamed of you. And if, I, if you're wondering why I'm saying that some people, because I've been to tons of sermons where we're told that God's pretty well ashamed of us. And thank goodness he had a good day and sent Jesus, otherwise we'd all be stuffed. That's not true. God is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you. He adores you. It's in that grace, in that gift, in that mercy, in that wonder, that we step out in faith and offer the gospel and fumble and succeed and dance and fall over in the grace and mercy of God seeking to bear witness. God is not ashamed of you. It is God's hope that saves. It's never our effort. It's in that hope that we are invited to share the gospel and to live it out, live it out and to bear witness. It's the hope of God to save. And that, my friends, that is truly gift. Amen.